Good morning. My name is Sean. I'm the pastor here at Grace Church, and I'm glad that you guys showed up. We had a fantastic trunk or treat. It was our seventh annual trunk or treat uh, this past Friday night. How many of you guys were able to make it? Raise your hand if you're able to make it. How many of you guys volunteered uh, during that event? Thank you so much. I saw posts on Facebook, uh, and, and that we received some emails saying thanks for uh, the way that we served. Um, I was at Beantown Diner yesterday morning in Stoughton on Washington Street, and I saw a uh, coach buddy of mine from Stoyak uh, last few years. His name is Jim. Jim was in there, and, and uh, so he said, how did the trunk or treat go last night? I said, it was fantastic. We had 2,000 register, and, I'll, and that showed up, and I bet you we had 1,000 show up that didn't register, so we sent them away. There's no room in the inn. I'm sorry, you can't find Jesus. We don't love you. You didn't RSVP. We love RSVPs, though. No, I'm just kidding. The people who didn't register but showed up, they got to do the trunk or treating. We weren't able to bring them in because we knew that with all of the cars that were parked all the way in all of these lots around us and even up at Dunkin' Donuts and once the Dunkin' Donuts lot, and by the way, we did have the manager. That Dunkin' Donuts manager was so cool on Friday night. This isn't a plug for Dunkin' Donuts, but Jesus does hate Starbucks. That's in the Bible. <clears throat> I'm just saying, it's in the book of Revelations or something. I don't know. Um, but we knew that there'd be cops everywhere just kind of like watching things. And so we wanted to make sure that if the fire marshal walked through, we didn't have any more than 800. So we weren't allowed to bring those people who didn't register in. Uh, but they still had a great time because they were able to do the trunk or treating because of all of the volunteers that helped us serve. Then yesterday we had the, oh, and by the way, uh, so my buddy Jim uh, said, uh, did you notice that the elementary schools here in Stoughton are doing their own trunk or treats now? And I said, oh, really? That's awesome. And he goes, I wonder where they got that great idea. <clears throat> and I don't, I don't, I probably they may have gotten it from us, but we don't care if they do one too. I mean, we just want to, we will just want to bless the community. And if the rest of the town wants to do it too, we'll help them pull off their events so they can make it even better. We just want to make a difference here in, in the community. It's nice to, to know that that's happening. Uh, then yesterday we had our very first annual, and I'm calling it the first annual because that implies there will be a second annual. Fall Fest in Bridgewater yesterday. We're going to be starting at Grace Church Bridgewater, uh, Lord willing, about a year from now-ish is when that'll, that'll get up and, up and going. And so they had their first event. And uh, the pastor of that church, Stephen Sargent, had gone to uh, the rec department manager and had said, hey, this is what we want to do. We want to do a fall fest. You know, do we have your permission? What do you think? He goes, that's a great idea. He said, can the whole town promote that? And we said, no. No, I'm just kidding. We said, yeah, that would be great. So they promoted it for us and saw it as a great thing. Uh, so we're, 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 we're trying to help out the community even before we get there. And uh, I don't know how many volunteers we had go to that, but I heard it was a huge success. I saw a lot of pictures on Facebook. So if you were there or helped pull that off, thank you for doing that uh, also. This past week, <clears throat> excuse me, I was at a uh, church planters conference where we were talking to guys who hadn't started their churches yet about things that we had learned. And one of the other uh, uh, church planters that was at that conference with me had talked about how he and his wife were in counseling uh, as a marriage couple while they were starting their church. And I asked, are you guys in trouble? And he said, no, but I figure it'd be good for us to stay healthy all the way through this. And I was like, I wish somebody had told me that in the early days of our church because that would have been a, a blessing to me. I, how often do you want to get your car looked at by a mechanic? You don't want to wait until your car starts falling apart. Am I correct? Yes or no? 
We understand the idea of preventative maintenance. That's where you take your car in every three months to get the oil changed and have the mechanic do a once-over on it just to make sure everything's healthy. That's the same thing that marriage counseling is. And I honestly believe that every married couple should go to marriage counseling. Maybe not all the time, but you ought to at least do it once. And if you're sitting here thinking, I don't think I need counseling, I want you to know your wife paid me money to tell you, you do. The couples that don't think they need it are the ones who need it the most. I mean, we all need a tune-up, right? We all, we all need that. So whether your marriage is in crisis or your marriage is healthy, you just want to get some extra tools in the toolbox, right? Um, I, I really hope you make it to that, that uh, I still do thing two weeks from tonight. Uh, this is one of the things that came out of our friends and families check-in. So three times a year, we have you guys check in with us and tell us how things are going. And we want to plan what we do for the year uh, we want to plan things that actually help you take next steps. So one of those results is we're putting together this, this conference, this, this one-night event. <clears throat> we don't want it to take weeks and weeks and weeks. It's a one-night event, and we're doing this in response to the felt needs that you've shared with us, uh, ways that we can help out. So that's, that's what that is. Two weeks from tonight, I really hope that you can, you can make it to that. But today we're wrapping up our series called Five Lies, and this kind of dovetailed out of a three-week series that we called Head, Heart, Hands. The idea behind that series was that we all find ourselves in dysfunctional rhythms and patterns that we can't get out of. So you may or may not have ever found yourself in this place, but when you get to that place, you make a promise to God that I'm going to stop doing this, or in my, you know, in my next marriage, I promise I won't do that, or you know, we, we, we make these vows and these, these uh, conditions, these deals with God, and uh, we, you know, New Year's comes around and we say, I'm going to fix this. And, and, and so, or, or we'll blame it on the person we're married to. So we'll bail on that marriage. We'll go get in another marriage and find out that they're idiots. And we bail on that one. Then, then, the, then we look back at our life and we realize the one common denominator in all of those failed marriages was us, right? Or we think the boss is a jerk. So we go, or we, the people that we work with, and we just keep switching. But the problem is that we bring our own baggage with us everywhere we go. So um, we talked about how, how to fix that. Sometimes it's like a merry-go-round. It keeps spinning faster and faster, and we don't want to keep puking on our own lives. So how do we stop this? We said that there was uh, things that we needed to think differently about because the way that we think affects the way that we feel. And truthfully, the driver of the things we do is what we feel. And proof of this is that you've known you should or shouldn't do things that you did or didn't do because you didn't feel like it. So our feelings is what drives the choices that we make. So in that series, we talked about um, uh, different ways that we could uh, uh, grab the negative thoughts uh, before they start, like as they start forming, that we could, we could guard our heart and make sure then that our actions reflected what we say we really believe. And then in this Five Lies series, we've said, now let's, let's apply what we've just learned in that three-week Head, Heart, Hand series to each one of these lies that we believe. Let's, let's get new information and let's think about these new things from what the Bible says about what you've been believing that isn't true. And let's see if that doesn't start to begin to affect the way that you feel. Because if we can then begin to affect the way that you feel, it'll help you to, to make different choices. And we're ending with the one that I think is probably the heaviest lie and probably the most consequential lie. It has the most serious ramifications, I believe. It's, it's, not, it's, not, a, it's not a comfortable one. Um, in preparing for the teaching this weekend, my concern is that I would be too heavy or that would come across too confrontational. Um, and I didn't want it to be. It, it is heavy, and I don't think there's any way around that. Uh, on the whole confrontational side... Uh, there's a temptation then to just like lean into that and say, this is the way it is. You know, if you don't like it, you know, tough it. 
kind of a thing. Or, or the other, I think the other extreme would be to like soften the entire thing so that nobody gets mad at me. And, and I, I think that both of those would weaken um, what the Bible actually has to say about this lie. Uh, so what I had to do in, in my mind is, is I'm picturing like how would I, my son is 22 years old. <clears throat> he graduates from college this year and he put on, on Instagram this past week that he's still trying to decide where he's going to live after he graduated. And I thought that was already decided. Homeboy's coming back to Boston, but apparently that's not true. So, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Like he's about to go out into the whole wide world, right? And uh, like if, if, he, if, if his life starts to get squirrely, right, and he starts to like, like get jammed up spiritually speaking in his life, how would I want someone to share this conversation with him? So that's the spirit behind the, the teaching today is like how, how, would I want, how would I want to say this to Garrett if he was the one who was struggling with that? And so that's, I, I hope that's the spirit in which it is, is, is received. Um, um, but obviously, ultimately, that's, that's up to you, up to you and God. Um, there's a movie with um, Brad Pitt in it, and this is in the Bible, trust me, we'll get there. Uh, there's a movie with Brad Pitt and uh, Ryan from The Office, The Temp, um, called Inglorious, I'm going to use Johnny Dangerously language here from the 80s, uh, Inglorious Bastages. How many of you guys ever saw that movie? Did anybody see Inglorious Bastages? See, that's a made-up word. It's not a, you're like, oh, my word, you swear. No, I didn't swear. I said bastage. That's not even a real word. That was completely fabricated by the writers of, like, it was beautifully fabricated. It's a fantastic word. I love the, how many of you guys remember Johnny Dangerously? Anybody? You're like, you just mentioned Johnny Dangerously in church. This is going to be a good day. This is going to be a good day. The movie is about, it's a World War II movie where Brad Pitt is a, uh, like a, you know, rock'em, sock'em, take no prisoners kind of a military leader. And he's looking for seven Jewish men to drop behind enemy lines in Nazi-occupied territory. And we're going to kill more, not, we're going to kill as many Nazis as we can until we get killed. That's the theme of the whole movie. We're just going to kill as many Nazis as possible. But you will not make it out of this is what he tells every one of these guys. So he's got a group of, of Jewish recruits. And uh, they're all going to be, some of them will be impersonating Germans even while they're there. And so he just says, and you know, he's, he's walking up and down the line and saying, you will not return. You will not live through this mission. And, you know, he's making it difficult. And he says, so all of you guys who, you know, you know don't, who don't want to do this, you don't have to. There's no shame in walking away. But now's your chance to walk away. And not a single, of them, a single one of them walk away. And you're like, oh, this movie's going to be great. It's a completely inappropriate movie. I should not be talking about it at church. At all. In fact, if you watch that on Vid Angel, that's that movie that filters out all of the violence, the swearing, and the illicit stuff. The movie's about like eight minutes long. Um, but <laughs> oh, I should probably just get to the Bible here. But uh, anyway, it's a great. Now, now in real life, uh, this is this is. It was actually written off of a real life real life event. And there are if you, Netflix right now has the real story of the Inglorious Bastages. So how many of you guys have Netflix? Raise your hand. You need to go home and watch the documentary because there were only three of them. There were only there wasn't seven plus one. There really were three Jewish guys that parachuted behind enemy lines, and the stuff they did is fan like it's even better than the actors in the movie did. It was fantastic. And, and they all lived through the war. And uh, the, the documentary actually connects these two guys on Skype. And they hadn't talked to each other in like decades. And then they're freaking out because he's like, wow, you're old. And he's like, wow, you're old too. And like to see these guys reconnect, it was, it was a beautiful, like I got goosebumps. You can't, like, <laughs> look underneath my shirt. There's goosebumps. 
uh, there, but is is absolutely fantastic. Well, there's this scene where three of them have to impersonate uh, uh, German German Nazis, and they have to meet up with their spy in the basement of of a of a house which has been turned into a pub, but it's only got one means of egress. So they were, Brad Pitt was talking about how bad of a plan this was. That we said we didn't want to go into any enclosed spaces, but there's not going to be any other Nazis in there. But when they get in there, one, some guy in, in the, in the uh, uh, German army, uh, his wife had a baby, so him and all of his Nazi buddies are in the bar, uh, impromptu celebrating the birth of their child. And, and I'm not going to spoil the movie, but I'm a, definitely about to spoil this scene right here. Uh, and then there's a Gestapo guy who walks in, too, because he just hears commotion in the bar. No, no, he was already in there, and, uh, and, and he doesn't recognize the accent of the Jewish guys who are, who are playing Nazis, and so he comes over, and he says, where are you from, and he's heard of that town, and where are you from, and he's heard of that town, and, and then he comes to the other guy who actually wasn't born in a German-speaking country, uh, and his, he says, I don't recognize your accent, and you're like, oh, no, how's this going to go down, so he kind of sits down at the table with them uninvited, um, and then they're having this conversation, and he, as a Gestapo agent, is in charge of finding out bad guys who are posing as, or in our case, good guys posing as Nazis uh, to kill them. So that's what he's doing, and he's, he's leaning in on this guy a little bit, and, and he's kind of getting away with faking, pretending to be somebody that he's not, until the Gestapo guy says, how many, are, how many of you are there? Then he says, there are three of us. And if you remember the scene in the movie, that's what gives them away, is he says, there are three of us. Because Americans count to three like this. Germans count to three like this. And so as soon as he does this, this guy pulls a gun out under his table and cocks it at that guy, and he knew he had blown it. He pulls out a gun, so then everybody's got guns under the table pointing at everybody else <laughs> under the table like this. And then all hell breaks loose. It's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> it's amazing. But the guy, like he was really good at faking, but eventually he was found out. And that's behind the lie that we're talking about today. The lie that we're talking about today is, I believe in God, so I'm all set. That's the lie. The lie is that since you believe in God, you're all set. Jesus talks about this in the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You don't even have to be religious, and you've probably heard of the Sermon on the Mount. And at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus kind of wraps it up with like this really heavy saying that probably just like brought like the whole mood of like, blessed are those who are poor, right? Blessed are they that mourn. And everybody's like, yeah, this feels great. I love this sermon. I, it's, a, it's a great sermon. Makes me feel good about myself. And then Jesus gets to the end of the sermon and then just ruins the whole vibe he had just created in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And here's what Jesus says. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want to stop. And I think truthfully that this is one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will go to heaven. Now, the people who called out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, are people who know who Jesus is. They know he's the son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay off the debt for sin for all of mankind. They're people who have prayed to Jesus and have said, Lord, Lord, they've cried out to Jesus. They've prayed to him, Lord, Lord. He says, not everybody who said a prayer to me is going to heaven. Not everybody who believes in who I am is going to go to heaven. Not everybody who cries out to me, Lord, Lord, is actually going to go. 
Like the fear that I have is that there may be a lot of us here at church on a Sunday morning that think we're all set and aren't. Like these people are going to be shocked when they stand before God on judgment day and he says, I'm sorry, you're not in. There there were people that thought they were all set but weren't. And they're not going to know until judgment day that they ain't right with God, that they ain't ready. Now, I, I think that if you truly believe what you say you do believe, that this verse ought to scare the living tar out of you. The Apostle Paul said that it is a good thing for us from time to time stop and check to make sure that we're saved, that we're right with God, that we've been rescued from the consequences of our sin, that we've been spiritually made alive, that we've gone from death to life, from darkness to light, from spiritual orphan to being adopted into God's family. Paul said, it's a good thing for us to every once in a while stop and consider whether or not we truly have been transformed by God's word and his spirit. That would be a good thing for us to do. And when Jesus says, Not everybody who thinks they're a Christian really is a Christian. That ought to give us a moment to pause. Now, we can look at other people and go, oh, that's definitely true. I know a lot of people who call themselves Christians who don't live, love, give, or serve anything like Christ. How many of you guys know poser Christians right off the bat? Raise your hand. That's Really, that's it? All the Christians you know are rock-solid followers of Jesus? I'm going to give you another chance. How many of you guys know fake Christians? Raise your hand. I'm here sitting next to them. No, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> He's right over here. I can't stand him. <laughs> Look at the rest of what Jesus says. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. So he says, there's a disconnect for some people between what they say they believe and how they actually live. And I, I see that disconnect. And that disconnect is there because it never actually happened for them. They tried on Christianity, but they never let it change their identity. It never affected, like it was, it was something that they wore on Sunday mornings. It was, it was like ketchup they put on french fries. It, it wasn't like they changed the menu. They just, and truthfully, a lot of us look at it that way. I, I don't want the kind of Christianity that changes everything about my life. I want the kind of Christianity that obligates God to bless the life I already have. Or is this just me? Like, what if following Jesus meant that everything was wrecked and you had to start all over from scratch, but now it was God who was building the life? I don't know that we would sign up for that. What I want is for God to bless me and what I want to do. That's what I want. I don't want God to do things in my life that I don't want Him to do. But if following God means that He's going to do things with my life that I wasn't planning on, I don't really know if that's the kind of Christianity I'm signing up for. And I think that's the point that he's trying to make. Look at the next verse. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name or we preached. This means many people, many preachers are not going to be spending eternity with God. Is that what Jesus said, yes or no? Many will say, 
Did we not prophesy in your name? Did I not preach in your name? Did we not preach in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Listen, if you're casting out demons, you're at like a whole nother level. Like you've like, you're like level eight. You're like, 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 like I don't know what Nintendo level you're at. But if you're casting out G G demons, I'm thinking you're like at Jesus ninja levels I ain't at yet. Truthfully, I don't want to be at them ninja levels to be honest, right? I'm just saying, they said, we have cast out demons in your name. We have preached in your name. We have performed many miracles in your name, verse 23, but I will reply. It's not that you were a good person, then you were a bad person, so I cast you out. He says, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Some of us feel that if we are bad enough that God will kick us out of his family, but Jesus says that those that God sends to me, the Father sends to me, I will in no wise cast out. So Jesus makes a promise, and that should inform what you think, which will then change the way you feel, which will then calm the way that we freak out sometimes. But he says that those that my Father sends to me, I will under no conditions ever kick out of my family. Under no conditions, Jesus said that. I will in no wise, the King James says, I will in no wise cast them out. Now, here's another scary verse in the Bible. Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless my Father draws them. Nobody comes to faith in Jesus unless God the Father is pulling them towards faith in Jesus. And the reason why I think that's scary is that you don't get to choose the day you get right with God. Proof? This very service. Some of you guys are being in this service, and right now, God's Holy Spirit is already causing you to search your heart right now, and you seriously are really humble before God, and you are open to the Word of God, and others of you are just wondering when I'm going to shut up so you can get out of here, and it has nothing to do with me, my sermon, or the verses we're looking up. The difference is the first person is being drawn by God, and you, you're not, and that ought to terrify you. Now, I don't know how many chances each person gets to be drawn to faith in Jesus. I believe that Romans 1 indicates everybody gets one shot to come to the understanding that there might actually be a God. And I think God waits to see if your heart softens towards that. Not that he doesn't know. He knows whether or not your heart will soften. And he continues to draw. Places people in your life and he continues to draw. And as you respond, he continues to draw. But at some point, I believe we do get to a place where we reach the last chance we're ever going to get. Now, I don't know when that last chance is. But you don't set that God does. So some of you may think, I probably, I've said no to God so many times. There's no way in the world I'll have any more chances. And I'll say this. If you have the desire to get right with God, then you are being drawn by God. It's not too late for you. You'll know it's too late when you don't even want it anymore. Because the only way you'll have the want to is if God is drawing you. So Jesus said, those that my Father draws, those who come to faith in me, my promise is that I will never kick them out. Then Jesus says there's another passage of Scripture, those who've come to me are in my Father's hands, and no person can pluck them out. So those who are adopted as spiritual orphans and adopted into the family of God, the Bible says that I will call you my sons and my daughters. You are co-heirs with Jesus to my promises, those people. Jesus said, number one, God will never kick you out of his family. Number two, no one can pull you out of your family. And if you never earned your salvation by your good deeds, you can't lose something you never earned in the first place by your bad deeds. 
So for these people Jesus is talking about, it's not like they ever had it and then lost it. You can't. Paul says if you could lose your salvation, then you could never gain it again because that would be like putting Jesus to death on the cross twice. So once you're adopted into the family of God, that's why Jesus refers to it as being born again. You can't be, can you ever go to a time and like, can you ever be unborn? Now that you're born, can you ever like be unborn like you never existed? No, you're born. That's, that's an irreversible thing. You are born. Now you exist. Jesus is the one who uses that language to describe your spiritual birth. Once you're born, you can't be unborn. You are now born into the family of God. I can change my last name, but because of the genetics in my, like, my, like I am the son of Ron and, and, and Marilyn Sears. And if their blood is strong enough to keep me their kid, I'm 100% confident the blood of Jesus is strong enough to keep me God's kid. Are you with me? But this verse does not say they lost anything. He said, I never knew you. You never were. It's not that you were and then you lost it. It's not that you were, but I pushed you out. You never were. There are people who look like Christians, and at least to the rest of us, act like it, but ain't. That makes me nervous. How many of you guys say, okay, that verse is a little unsettling? Raise your hand if the verse is a little unsettling. Okay, you guys are the ones paying attention. But the problem, truthfully, is that they never got to a place where they internalized what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where Jesus said this, that those who want to come after me must deny their selfish ways. What if Jesus actually meant that? That in order to be saved, to be spiritually transformed, to be adopted into his family, it wasn't just that you believed Jesus was the Son of God. It wasn't that you just believed that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. But that belief that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead moved you to a place where you said, I will no longer make decisions based on what is best for me. What if that's what he actually meant? Because how many of us have actually turned from selfishness? And then he says, and have laid your life down as a sacrifice. Who here wants to sacrifice? I don't want that. I want a Jesus who's going to bless my 401. I want a Jesus who's going to give me influence at work. I want a Jesus who's going to make my kids awesome. I want a Jesus who's going to help me get married. I want a Jesus who's going to help me stay married. I want a Jesus who's going to let me get out of this marriage. I want, like, I want a Jesus who's going to bless what I already want. I don't want a Jesus who's going to change what I want. We're more into Christianity for what it can do for us, not what it will do to us. But have you ever considered the fact that all 12 of the disciples, Judas hanged himself and he was replaced by Matthias, so I'm including Matthias. All 12 of the disciples of Jesus were tortured to death? What if that's what it looked like? What if that's what it meant to be a follower of Jesus? I wonder how many of us would sign up for it then. Because, and, and don't think on, like this is just in old-timey days. Forty devoted followers of Jesus were beheaded this summer in Egypt. And all they had to do was recant that they believed Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's still happening it's just in other parts of the world. 
What if that's what it means to deny yourself, to turn away from selfishness? And what if when Jesus said you had to live your life as a sacrifice, what if it actually meant you had to sacrifice your real life? What if he actually meant what he said? What if Christianity isn't a way to get God to bless what I want? What if that's not what it's about at all? What if it's about me living my life in radical obedience to every single thing I see in here? Doing everything God puts in my heart to do, regardless of what it costs me or where it takes me. What if he actually meant what he said? How many of us really, really are Christians? I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a jerk to anyone. But I really do believe Jesus meant what he said when there's going to be a crap ton of us who are going to stand before God and be completely shocked because we believed the lie. That's simply because we acknowledged who he is and said a prayer or tried on Christianity like a jacket that we can take off really quick that we're all set with God. And we're not. We're really not right with God because we've worked really hard to not let him change Anything. We're more interested in Christianity as an improvement to our lives rather than an inconvenience to it. Can you imagine if somebody walked in right now? And I don't want to be like, <laughs> I'm never dramatic, ever, ever dramatic. I don't want to be ridiculously dramatic, but if somebody walked in right now and said, if you're a Christian, you're going to die, and I'm going to give you one chance to leave if you want. And while that extreme, while that sounds extreme, that has happened this year in other parts of the world. I wonder how many of us would be willing to give our lives to Jesus like he gave his life for us. Don't be too quick to say it's you. When we won't rearrange our budget, when we won't tithe and give an offering, don't say you would give your life for God. You won't give your finances to God. Don't say you would give your life for God when you don't love God enough to give Him your time. Don't say that you love God enough to give your life for God when you don't love God enough to serve your wife when she's selfish. Don't say you love God enough to give your life for God when you won't forgive people who've done unforgivable things to you when you were a kid. Because God forgave you when you've done unforgivable things. But you won't forgive them, will you? So don't say you would love God with your whole life. You would die for God when you won't even live for Him. I call BS. It's just not true. 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks a little bit more about this. And he says, uh, this is Paul was writing to, to Timothy. Hang on, I, I changed my tab. That, that, that string in your Bible, that shows you where you're at. Give me a second. Let me get to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 says this. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times for people will love what? Only what will people love? They will love themselves and they will love what? Tell me if that doesn't describe us. How could you prove that you don't only love yourself? How could you prove that you don't only love money? 
How could you prove that? For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. Dude, tell me if this doesn't sound like, like us. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving. They will be unforgiving. They will slander others. They will have no control over themselves. They will be cruel. They will hate what is good, and they will lift up what is evil. They will betray their friends. They will be reckless. They are puffed up with pride. They will love pleasure more, rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could actually make them godly. They want ketchup on their fries, but they want to keep eating the same fries that everybody else does. I want a little bit of Jesus on top of the life I want, which looks exactly like everybody else's life. I want to chase what other people chase. I just want the confidence and honestly a little bit of the condescending attitude that allows me to sleep at night because at least I'm going to heaven and they're not. He goes on and says in verse 8, he says that they have depraved minds and their faith is counterfeit. It's not real. They're not Christians. What if this whole idea of loving myself and loving my money was the determination on whether or not I really had faith? What if that really was what God was looking at? Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, and by the way, Jesus talked about money more than everything because he knew it was the one, number one competition for God's place in our heart. And it is, for me, it probably is for you. The number one competition for God's spot at first place in my heart is money. So Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. But then it goes to say that where your treasure isn't is where your heart isn't. Now, I... I'm guilty, and I've been, I've, this whole series has been rough for me. This has been eight weeks of spiritual crap. Because, sorry, I said I wasn't going to say crap anymore. I'm, no, I didn't say I wasn't going to say it anymore. I said I was going to say it less. All right, so there you go. There's my, my one shot. I'm glad I only said crap once. But it's been difficult because I felt like a hypocrite every single week, Right? Because, I, I mean, like I'm a bigger hypocrite than you because at least you have the good sense not to get up and tell everybody not to do the stuff you do, right? And I'm, I'm the one who's doing that. But when the Holy Spirit points out to me that I'm doing it wrong, what's my response? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 say that if I'm a child of God and I can live in rebellion against the authority of God in any area of my life, that there is conviction from God that leads me to a place of repentance where I turn where I recognize this is wrong before God and I'm sorry. I'm going to do it different from now on. But if you can keep going in this direction and it doesn't weigh down in your heart that your money, that your forgiveness, that your relationships are not in line with the will of God for your life, if that doesn't weigh you down, according to Hebrews chapter 12, you never were God's kid in the first place. You're the ones Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7. We're the ones. If we can do this, I mean, but so, I mean, the, the problem, it's actually good that there's a problem that I'm struggling with because that struggle indicates that God's spirit is there. The question is, what do I do when he points that out? If it humbles me to a place where I make a choice to do things differently, that's evidence that God's Holy Spirit is in me. 
when I know that it's wrong not to forgive the people that hurt me when I was a little boy, when I know that it's wrong to keep holding this against my wife, something she did years ago, and I know that that's wrong, and it moves me to a place where I finally ask for her forgiveness for being a jerk for all of these years, that's the evidence that God's Holy Spirit is in me. When I know that it's wrong, that I'm selfish with my resources, and I, real, and I go back to my budget, and I redo the whole thing so I can put God first, that's the evidence that God's Holy Spirit is there. When I serve people who are unlovely, when I love people who are horrible people, when I pray for those who persecute me, the Bible says, and love my enemies, that's proof that God's Holy Spirit is there. Now, I'm not saying that we're made right with God by doing good deeds. But the kind of faith that makes us right with God is the kind of faith that transforms our heart and gives us the want to, to do things differently. And if that want to isn't there, then his spirit isn't there. Go to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Excuse me, James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, I'm going to read 17 to 20. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it's the kind of faith that produces good deeds. It's dead and useless. So a lot of us will say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. I'm all set. But James says, unless the kind of faith you have is the kind of faith that produces a different life, a life that looks a lot like Jesus, then it's not the kind of faith that changes anything about your relationship with God. Keep going. Now, someone may argue, well, some people have the gift of faith and others have the gift of good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. But then you say you have faith because you believe that there is one God. You say you have faith because you believe Jesus died on the cross. You say you have faith because you believe that he rose from the dead. Good for you, he says. That's a little bit of sarcasm right there in the Bible. whip de doo like, that's what it actually says in the ancient Greek. Whoop-de-doo. They just translated it as good for you. Whoop-de-doo. Even the demons believe what you believe. But they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith that isn't backed up by living like Jesus, loving like Jesus, giving like Jesus, and serving like Jesus is not a faith that makes you right with Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13 say that we are to work to show the results of the faith that we say we have. And then verse 13, I love it, and I think it'd be a verse that would be great for you to memorize. It says, because it is God who is working in us to give us the desire for these things. If there is no desire in my heart to find a way to forgive people who've hurt me in unforgivable ways, then there is no Holy Spirit in my heart at all. If there is no desire to change my spending habits, then there's no Holy Spirit's presence. If there's no desire to serve my wife and to discipline my children with love, compassion, and tenderness, then there is no Holy Spirit of God at work in my heart at all because it is God who is at work in me giving me the want to to be like Jesus. And if you don't have that want to, it doesn't matter what you believe, you don't have the Spirit of God at work in your heart. That's the evidence. If there's no desire for greater obedience, then there's no genuine conversion of your heart. 
The problem, though, is that we don't see sin as the cancerous, contagious tumor that devours everything it touches until there's no good thing left in our life anymore. We see sin more like dirty clothes that need to be thrown in the closet when we have company coming over. That's how we manage our sin. I don't see it as a fire burning the curtains in my living room. I see my sin as something to be managed properly, something that's kept under control. I don't see the sin in my heart as a threat to my eternal existence in the presence of God. That's the problem. We see sin more like dirty clothes. I see me being a selfish jerk to my wife like dirty clothes. Selfish and angry in my response to my kids and their disobedience as dirty clothes. I don't see it as a fire threatening to ruin every good thing in my life. I play with sin. I don't reject it. I've not repented of it. I manage it. That's the problem. But Jesus' plan isn't to remodel the house that I've built. His plan is to tear the entire thing down, move it 50 yards that way, and rebuild the entire thing on rock. Jesus, earlier in his Sermon on the Mount, said that those of you who hear the teachings of mine but don't do them are like those who build your house on sand. And when the storms come, don't be surprised when the whole thing washes away. His plan isn't to build a safer house on sand. His plan, he says, those who hear these teachings of mine and do them are like those who've dug through the sand who hit rock. And then they build their entire, a brand new house on rock. Paul goes on to say, for no one can lay any other foundation for a house other than that foundation which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Anybody who builds their life around the teachings of Jesus have a house that will stand. Anybody who's looking for Jesus to bless the house they've built on sand will hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's what's at stake. Many people will say, Lord, Lord, did we not go to church every week? Did we not volunteer? Did we not? What's your list? And I will say, I never knew you. Why? Because you wanted me to manage the crap you were already building. That's not the deal. I gave my entire life for you. And nothing short of you giving your entire life in return will do. If I gave all of me to you, I wanted nothing less than for you to give all of you to me. That's the only way a relationship works. I can't go into this marriage with Billie Jane where she says, and I will take no others and have only you until death do us part, unless I say, well, I like that part. Tell you what, we're just going to wing it and see how it goes, but you keep your promise. That ain't a marriage, bro. But that, honestly, is a whole lot like the arrangement we tried to set up with God. And he ain't having it. It doesn't work that way. Your sins cause Jesus to be tortured to death. My sins. He died for Sean's sins. And he rose from dead with new life. And he calls me to do the same thing in Romans chapter 6, verses 5-11. through He says, put your old self to death. 
And just like when I was crucified, you were supposed to be crucified with me. And just like I was buried, you were supposed to bury your old self with me. And just like I rose from the dead with a new life, you were supposed to come out of this arrangement committed to a completely new life following me with the rest of your life. That's what it looks like. I want the, G, the clean, pretty Jesus on the crucifix. I want the, that blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus, which, by the way, he wasn't either one. Like this, with a glowing thing around his head. Like, I want the pretty Jesus. Right? I don't want the skin shredded, back torn up, bones laid bare, spit on, beard half ripped out, falling on the ground because he has no physical stamina anymore. I don't want that Jesus because that Jesus makes me feel bad about myself. I want a Jesus that's going to make all unicorns and rainbows. I don't want suffering. I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to admit that I'm caked with sin and selfishness. I don't want to repent of being a jerk to my wife. I want her to suck it up and deal with it. This is just me. I don't want to repent so I will spend forever separated from God because of my pride. Not because he didn't rescue me from it. It's because I rejected it. That's why. I didn't want to die to myself daily. I wanted him to bless what I wanted to do daily. And so I live without peace with God, thinking that everything's all set because I grew up in church. That's the lie. And that ought to scare the living crap out of you. And I think Jesus is okay with me saying crap right there because that word fit. <laughs> if the story of your life is that you refuse to yield your resources to God, without regret and deep conviction, then you're not God's child. If the story of your life is that you refuse to yield to offering forgiveness to those who have hurt you without deep regret and conviction, you are not God's child. If you refuse to yield your lust to God without deep conviction and regret, you are not a child of God. If you refuse to yield and stop stealing from your boss or ripping off your customers without deep regret and conviction from his Holy Spirit, you are not a child of God. If you can flirt with people you're not married to in inappropriate ways and you refuse to yield that over to God without deep conviction and regret, you are not God's child. If you can refuse to offer God your sexuality, if you refuse to offer God your finances, if you refuse to offer God you without deep conviction and regret from the Spirit of God, then it is because you do not have the Spirit of God within you. But it doesn't have to stay that way. If God's Holy Spirit has right now impressed on you the possibility that you are not right with God, you really can fix that right now because he really did die on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead with new life for one reason, to pay off your debt with God and to give you a new shot at living life his way. But God has never forced that on anybody. That's the offer he makes to everybody, but only those who repent of their sin, who reject their selfishness, who are willing to make themselves a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. I'm not asking you to die for Jesus. 
He's asking you to at least just live for him. You will spend eternity without him. You can fix that right now. I'm going to have everybody bow their head with me. And if you're feeling some kind of way towards God, then you tell him. If you're not comfortable with praying to God, think of praying like writing a letter. I would start off a letter to God, dear God, thank you for what? Thank you for bringing me here today. Thank you for letting me see these Bible verses in the Bible. Let, thank you that I feel something right now. Maybe it's been a long time since you felt anything. So you can pray that, God, I'm thankful that you're making me feel something. Because the Bible says if you feel something, it is because God is drawing you. So maybe you could thank him for that. God, thank you for not letting me go. God, thank you for giving me another chance. And I don't want to blow this chance. And it's not just that you cry out, Lord, Lord. There's no magic prayer you pray that brings you into the family of God. It's the kind of belief that leads to trust that defines what faith is. God, I believe you enough to trust you with the rest of my life. That's faith. Jesus, I believe you enough to trust you with all of me. God, I'm giving you my life, and I have no idea what this is going to look like or what this means for me, but I'm all in. Just like when I, I said I do to Billy Jane, I was 100% married, but that didn't mean that I knew I had figured out what it was going to look like to be a good husband. That's been a process, but I was committed to the process on day one. So that's what I'm saying. God, I'm committed to the process. I'm all in. I know you gave your life for me, and I want to give my life for you. Show me things that need to be tweaked right away, and I'll start working on them. Maybe you're already a follower of Jesus, and you know areas of your life where you are in disobedience before God. And you say that you follow Jesus, but you really don't. Not in the things that matter most to you. But if they matter most to you, don't you think that they matter most to him because they matter most to you? And don't you think that'd be the one thing he's waiting on for you to finally yield to him? then you choose whether or not you're ready to yield that. What is it, your past? Your relationships? Your sexuality? Your workplace? Your friends? Maybe the person you're dating is not who you should be dating before God. You know for a fact before God you should not be in this relationship. Like, I don't know how God's going to make it specific to you. I'm just trusting that you know. So tell him what you think you should do, what he's causing you to do. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit is at work in every one of our hearts. Now, I've got to know, I've got to expect that there are some people who are getting absolutely nothing from the teaching today. They've heard your word, and it's not making any difference because you're not drawing them. My prayer, God, is that you would give them another opportunity on another day. If not here, then somewhere, God, please. For those that your Holy Spirit is drawing, I pray that we would respond. I'm thankful for the way that you have been working me over in my own heart this week. I'm thankful, God, that that conviction that I feel because of the sin that I've allowed to creep back into my life. I'm thankful that that's evidence that you're in my life. I'm thankful for conviction. I'm thankful for the kind of feelings that lead me to a place of repentance. I'm thankful, God, that you're not done with me. I'm thankful that you're still shaping me. I'm thankful that you're still looking for rough spots. I'm thankful that you still want me to be a better husband, a better father, a better neighbor, and that you're not done shaping me. God, forgive me for all of those times when I refuse the process. Help me to submit and to yield 
and to humble myself enough to allow you to begin changing me. Because God, I trust that you know what you're doing with my life. God, help me not to waste it. I get one shot. That's all any of us get. Help us not to waste it. Rescue us from the consequences of our sin and help us to submit ourselves for the rest of ourselves to following Jesus with all of ourselves. And we pray this in your great name, Jesus. And we all pray and say together, amen. amen.